Welcome to Season 3 of Should We? A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. Brought to you by MailChimp. Today we are here with a special guest, Heather Phillips, who is a leader in the design community, a design manager at Designer Fund, that's a lot of design, all in a row, and an instructor at CCA, and I'm so excited to talk with you today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. My first question for you is, should we send New Year's cards? Um, Great question. Yes. I, for the past five years, have been sending some form of a holiday card. And often it takes the form of maybe a New Year's card because there's a little more leeway in the window in which you can send a card. But yeah, I have done that because... It's been just an annual way for me to reconnect with all the people in my life. And I also have, with each year, an increasingly more elaborate design project for myself. So if there's something that I've been excited to experiment with or make something in a some kind of physical format or incorporate colors or something that I've been, been wanting to work with, uh, my annual holiday card is an opportunity to experiment and make like a fully self-directed project of some kind. Mm, Well, I felt so lucky to receive your card this year. And it was very, very like hypnotic kind Mm. of. What what was it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the way, and this is like very much baked into the process that probably nobody realizes, but I started, I usually have some kind of constraint and often the constraint is that it has to be flat and mailable and the previous year I had done a year at a glance calendar and so was very well received because it was it had some utility and people kept it around all year and so I started thinking that I wanted to do something else with a calendar but in a different format and I thought I was going to do a, a circular calendar of some form and then as I started working through through the project Um, I realized that there were even more constraints, and if you wanted to fit 365 lines around a circumference of a circle, they got really tightly, (laughs) they they were pretty close together, and so it almost had like a optical illusion, the effect of an optical illusion. Yeah, so then I started looking into all, so it's actually... um, a moray pattern. And so I started looking into op art and doing some research and then the whole project transformed and became this like layered optical illusion that, yeah, it took on new form. And I think when I was designing it as well, I was trying to figure out what kind of sentiment I wanted to share at the end of the year. And I was at a point that I was like, well, nothing, nothing makes sense anymore. So (laughs) I'll make something that um, has to do with time travel and thinking about the future. So that's how it came about. What you're describing is so such a nice example of a great design process, I guess, where your constraints are 
part of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, that that brings me to another question that. Actually, I feel like I've been wanting to ask you since I met you. The question is, what is designer fund? And <laughs> I, I, I ask this as someone who has interacted with designer fund mm-hmm. for several years. And I have to confess that I had been to the designer fund office mm-hmm. and worked from those lovely couches there mm-hmm. several times. And each time I went, I thought it was a different thing. I would go there. I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was at Designer Fund. It's like a co-working space. And then I would go, I'd be like, oh, I think it's like, a, you know, it's like a design community space. And then, like, later I learned more and more about it. And I was like, that is the... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the answer is it's all of the above. It's yeah. many things. One part of the business is the community, which I think is kind of encompasses everything that we do. And our mission is to bring better design products and services into the world. And so there's all these different extensions of the business that further that mission. So one area is that we invest, hence the name Designer Fund. We have a fund where we invest in designer-founded and design-focused companies So typically we invest in the seed stage, early stage investments, and we are looking for companies where designers are coming in at the founding level and taking a path of entrepreneurship, or that companies where they're using design as a key differentiator. So bringing design into industries where it's traditionally been lacking. So that often falls in healthcare, um, education, finance. And so the the fund is one area, and we're able to support the founders and the teams of designers. And another way we support designers is through our professional development program called Bridge. And then with the community piece, we host all kinds of other events. Like we have a series called Women in Design, and we just hosted a design leadership summit called Source, which Lisa, you attended. And I loved it. It was really <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, that was our largest endeavor yet. So yeah, all of this is in service of the design community and encouraging designers to bring better design products and services into the world. So I feel like, and maybe this is by design, I discovered all these different aspects of Designer Fund before I realized it was a venture capital fund, even though I I assume that was kind of the start how it began. And I would say that I have in mind a lot of stereotypes about venture capital. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I had known that it was a venture capital firm, I might have behaved differently in this space. Like, I don't know, maybe I would have tried to be more professional or (laughs) just sat up straighter or I don't know. I mean, I just... I, I think that in my mind, the idea of venture capital and the idea of a cozy, creative, welcoming space that's really relaxed, mm-hmm. they seem kind of at odds. Mm-hmm. But I also have to confess, I've never been to another venture capital. They're not like space. our office. <laughs> I, I don't imagine. So I'm curious, like, 
What does venture capital mean to you? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So Designer Fund didn't actually start as a venture fund, despite the name. It started actually as a nonprofit that was just supporting designers through grants and access to resources. And I think that eventually realized that the way that we could have a greater impact was by giving designers access to capital to pursue some of these endeavors. And kind of we're looking at the landscape and wondering why more designers weren't founding companies. I think one part of it was just a lack of of other role models. I think now we look at companies like Airbnb and Pinterest and Square, and we, we see these scenarios that makes that path seem seem plausible. And, you know, just five plus years ago, that wasn't the case. Ben and Enrique, the founders of Designer Fund, went out and spoke to, you know, interviewed 50-some designers and, and tried to better understand the path that they wanted to take and the futures they saw for themselves and realized that becoming a founder was just not something that a lot of them imagined for themselves. And in trying to learn why, I think it was, you know, designers, you know, business and entrepreneurship was not something that was part of design education. And the idea of, of how you would access capital and build a business plan and all of that was, was very foreign to them as well. So I think that was kind of how the idea originally came about. And the space has always been very design focused. And in building the space, also talk to many designers to try to, f- to find out, like, if you're not in your office, what are the qualities that you look for in an inspiring workspace? They would describe places that they would go to work and coffee shops and, you know, little nooks in their office where they would go hide away and, and be able to do focused work. And so we tried to replicate that in our office space to create a very flexible work environment that's modular. And there are all those little nooks where you can be heads down and do focused work. So it sounds like you discovered that a lot of designers with the the potential to found companies mm-hmm. weren't doing it, didn't necessarily um, understand what what might be the path to mm-hmm. to getting started. And and the question of should we start something mm-hmm. is kind of a thread that's running through this third season of should we and i'm curious like for designers who don't have a background in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and and also for people who are generally underrepresented in entrepreneurship in general or in venture capital funded companies what kind of advice would you give them if they're thinking of starting something mm. I mean, I think that we see all of these examples now, and there always was a first. There's been lots, so much documentation and interviews now with the founders of Airbnb who describe basically like not even being able to get meetings with venture capitalists as primarily designer-founded team. And I think for the people that have that inclination and are feeling like they're driven to start something, that they too could be the first to start that trend. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of entrepreneurship is there are no rules and you can just go out and and do something on your own. Hmm. I think that leads into 
my next question, mm -hmm. which is, should we write our own job descriptions? Mm -hmm. And I ask you because Diana and I have, have each done that in different ways. And you have two in ways that I really admire. So, so I'm curious. I think I have already revealed that the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> but <laughs> tell us, should we? Yes. I think that what I would say is you should know that it's an option. And I can tell you a little bit more about how I learned that it was an option. And it was because the other way wasn't working. So I have been on the job market twice during times that were less than favorable for our economy, right? When I first graduated from college and then again after graduate school. So I finished a graduate program in design at RISD and never have I felt so well prepared to go out and look for a job because in this program I'd spent the last couple years doing self-directed projects and a lot of self-exploration and thinking very deeply about the type of work I wanted to be doing after school and emerged after this program and couldn't find a full-time job. So I ended up doing a bunch of, of contract work. Work was available, but I, I, had, I had imagined for myself was that I wanted to be working full-time in-house at a company, and those opportunities weren't as available. So I did a whole bunch of different in-house contract stints with companies. And one of those was with Yammer, where I was coming in for three months to fill in for a designer who was going on maternity leave. And I came in and, you know, there were projects underway that I was, I was going to be picking up in her stead and also just recognize all these other design needs throughout the company. And so about a month and a half into my three-month contract there, I put together a proposal that I was going to present to my manager about all the other areas where I thought design was needed and that I thought we could bring on an additional three designers to fill those roles. And this was a, you know, an early stage, rapidly growing company, so it wasn't a crazy proposal by any means. And so I presented that and one of those, you know, assuming that one of those full-time roles would be my own, in addition to the designer who would be coming back at the end of her maternity leave, and I was hired. That was kind of the first time where I was like, oh, interesting. Like sometimes companies don't necessarily recognize exactly what they need and I can, I can come in and make this kind of proposal to them. So that was like the first taste of it that was like, oh, wow, that, that actually worked. Following Yammer, I spent two years at Relate IQ. And when I was kind of coming to the end of my time there and recognizing that I wanted to do something new, I didn't want to just throw myself into the, the next opportunity without taking a step back. And so I started reaching out to designers who were doing the type of work that I, th I thought was aligned with what I wanted to be doing next. And one of those companies was Designer Fund. So I reached out to them and I sat down and, and had lunch with Ben, who's one of the partners and founders, and learned more about what they did. And so you know, they have this investing side of their business. They work with designers in all these different capacities. And I left that meeting and felt really inspired 
and thought, you know, I'm again at this point of transition where I feel like I could really benefit from getting advice and and learning more about the types of opportunities that are available to me. And Designer Fund seems so uniquely positioned to fill that role. And they were already doing it, but it was very informal. It was like informal lunches and coffees with designers and meeting designers through events. And so I came back to them with yet another proposal and said, these are all these these areas where I think you could help support the design community. And this is where I think I could provide value and I could come in and, and help you build some of these programs. And again, it worked. And so I came into Designer Fund initially um, on a contract and quickly again found that there were so many needs and there are so many areas where I could provide value. And uh, two years later, I'm I'm still there. Mm. So yeah, so those were my experiences with writing my own job descriptions. How does your design eye play into the job descriptions you write for yourself? Mm. In both of these cases, I did some need finding and framing of the problem and and then started to kind of build out from there. I think that that's a a good exercise. I also think that it's helpful as an individual writing your own job description to kind of reverse engineer too from like the type of work you want to be doing and and how you want to be spending your day to day. I think both of those are design processes and also just approaching a problem a variety of different ways to kind of test test its boundaries. That is part of it. I think you were mostly writing job descriptions for things you hadn't done before, mm-hmm. really. Like it, a role that was new for you and new for the company. Mm-hmm. And that that's happened for me, too. And so, it, you know, it, it makes me wonder, like, why did they say yes? Like, <laughs> why did it work? And part of it is the need finding you describe, like, really listening and learning and doing whatever research you can to understand what challenges the the people around you are facing or the company as a whole is is facing and then finding some intersection with the needs mm-hmm. and some aspect of your own expertise or your own strengths or experience that can be helpful plus an opportunity like a need of your own like some aspect where that role you're writing is a little bigger, a little further along than when you, where you are right now. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting to you and to them. It, it takes a lot of careful balance of those ingredients, I think. Mm-hmm. There's also this balance of what they need and being really perceptive about that and what you want. Mm-hmm. So I had this experience where I was talking with a, a startup about an opportunity I didn't end up taking, but it was very open-ended and I got interested in the problem and I wrote a script against their API to like figure out the balance of the things that were going on in their community. And then I like built out a whole proposal based on what I found in the numbers. And um, that proposal, like I learned a, a few years later that that's like what they used in their venture capital print. <laughs> Oh, wow. venture capital pitches. Um, but uh, at the end of that process, I basically decided I didn't want to do it, you know. So, yeah. like, I knew what needed to happen, but I didn't know. I didn't know I didn't want to do it until I knew what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I do think it's a, a process in both of the instances that I described, too. I did have the advantage that I had a foot in the door and was able to have this, like, preliminary period to test the waters and, and do that need finding, but also confirm for myself whether or not it's something I was interested in. And then I think also, even when you're in a role, continually checking in with yourself about whether or not it's the type of work you want to be doing. And I think we work in an, an industry that if you're at a company that is in a growth stage where things are changing and evolving, like oftentimes your role is able to to change and evolve with it, which I think is is advantageous and, and allows for a lot of freedom and flexibility. And and I recognize that 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 isn't always the case in in other industries. So I was when I was thinking back, I was trying to think, was it something about the, the types of companies that I was at, the stage they were at, the industry that they were in that made this possible? I, I do think that it does help. But I think that checking in with yourself, regardless of the type of company or stage, is is a helpful thing to do. Mm-hmm. I would say as another data point, mm-hmm. I did also once try to write my own job description when I worked in publishing. And that the work I did eventually um, get a, a new role. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, ultimately it was more about what the what this publisher needed and less of what I really wanted. Mm-hmm. So so I didn't say but but they did find someone else for the role. Like <laughs> but through that process we did discover a need mm-hmm. there. I guess as you were talking, it also made me wonder, do I even really believe in job descriptions? Mm. Like, particularly in the field of technology and fast-growing startups, I a little bit don't believe in them, in that it's so rare that even if you are hired for a specific job description that was already written, that you come into the job and it actually is exactly what that job description said and that it actually stays that way for a long time. I feel like my experience has has always been either the job is going to evolve itself or I'm going to shape it. And i much rather shape it myself first, kind of like get ahead of it and constantly evolve it into something that matches like that's helping me grow and helping the company grow the idea that you can really slot yourself or that maybe just for me that I can slot myself into this nice little two paragraph box and kind of stay there cozy for a while like it's never really true I'm thinking of design docs, like the things that we write before we embark on a new feature. And those are probably the most thorough writing we ever do about what we're building until it's built and we write the blog post. And there's no like narrative prose between the design doc and the blog post. But there's a lot of change. It's just not captured in narrative prose. But still having a starting point of like, this is worth trying. This is worth starting and then agreeing to iterate on, I've made enough of a case for this that we can open this door, seems like a parallel between writing job descriptions and writing design documents. Yeah, I think just having a jumping off point and knowing that at least there is this area that has been carved out and where you would slot in. I I also have been part of very early teams where 
people have come in and the you know there's been this mentality it was like we just want smart people that are going to come in and figure mm-hmm. it out and that that works to some extent but i do think that it can cause some some thrash when there aren't clear boundaries or like expectations of how people are going to work together so i think just having a starting point and so in in your example having that initial design doc is really helpful as a jumping off point and then I think what is so exciting about working in technology often is that things are changing and, you know, there's new new things to take into consideration, scope changes, direction changes, and, and it keeps it it keeps it exciting. I have an unusual should we question. Mm. Should we compare ourselves to others? By which I mean should we compare our design team to others, oh, I know what as you're in at. your excellent design team rubric that you created. Yes. So part of what I have had the privilege of doing at Designer Fund is I spent a lot of my time talking to designers and then talking to design leaders and teams. And often the questions that they have for us as someone who has insight into what all these different companies are doing is how do we compare? How do other companies solve a similar problem? Or what have you seen other companies do or at a similar stage? And we found that oftentimes design leaders just don't have a sense of how they compare to other high-performing teams. And so having insight into all these different companies, I think in the past two years, I've, I've tried to make a habit of documenting as much as I can and, and try to create resources to give back to the design community. And so one of these resources was what I was calling a type of framework for high-performing teams, where I basically uh, outlined four different stages, company stages. So, you know, if you are have one to two designers all the way up to you have a VP of design and layers of design management, and then the areas that we kept seeing as contributing factors to how teams were performing. So, you know, what did their process and documentation look like? You know, what did their seating and space look like and how did that function? And so I tried to create a, a scale, I guess, for each of those categories of like what high-performing team looks like at level one, level two, level three, level four. And presented this for the first time at Source, the Design Leadership Summit that we hosted in February. And I was really nervous about presenting it because on one side, I thought like, is is this obvious? Is this obvious information that anyone who's been part of different design teams at different stages has some baseline for what is effective and, and, and what works and what doesn't? But I presented it and it was really well received. And and so many people came up to me after and said, it's just really encouraging to just have a sense of both where you're at and what it looks like to get to the next level. And so in that way, I do think it's helpful to compare yourself to other teams and just to get a baseline. And I do think that people really like forms of self-assessment. They want to know how they rank. They want to know how they're performing. They want to you know, do personality quizzes. Like they just want, they crave, you know, people crave that information. And so in that way, I thought that was a really helpful tool. I'm thinking about ways to share that where you could potentially take the quiz and figure out what your levels are. And just to have a baseline to know these are areas where we're performing at our level and what are the areas where there's room for improvement. 
I think that you are on the cusp of a new turning point. Mm -hmm. And so my my next question is, should we move on? Mm. Yes. So I think that I, and I, I think many creative people and designers do this in terms of applying design thinking and design skills to their own career path. And I think I have definitely done that over the years. And even in reflecting on that here today, I realized like I saw this, I had this experience of, of wishing that these resources were available to me as a designer. And then I went on to create them at Designer Fund. And so after having having done that for a couple years and been able to look inside so many different teams, I think that I, I'm starting to think about like what what is the next phase of that and how I can identify different needs and, and fill those needs. And so I think I think you know when when it's time to move on. And I think the most valuable thing is creating some time and space to identify exactly what that means for you. And sometimes that means focusing on something different in, you know, the same realm of what you're already doing. And sometimes that means starting somewhere new. And so I think I'm in the process of, of asking some of those questions. So are there any um, new constraints that you've given yourself for the next phase of your work? I think that after having looked inside and seen the interworkings of so many different design teams and, and gotten to know so many designers and advising them through their own searches, I think now I want to find a way to apply those skills, apply those learnings in a new environment. And that's one one constraint that I think I, I want to, to make sure that's that's a quality of what I do next. Yeah, I think the the team is is very important in that as well. Beyond that, there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns. There'll probably be my own personal frameworks applied to to this future thinking. And I guess time will tell. Personal framework sounds exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's it's so interesting to me how like structure and frameworks like seem to be a, a constant thread through mm-hmm. through your career which is funny because i don't know that that i would have guessed that about myself like i think that because i've always pursued design and was always labeled as like a creative in early early in my upbringing and i was drawn to to the arts and to design and so it's funny that I've latched on to these frameworks as a way to to ground that creative side. And yes, I've become quite fond of them. Creativity is often associated with chaos, but I, 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 I think in some ways that's a, a little bit of a myth. I think mm-hmm. structure and creativity can go really well together. Yeah. I have one more surprise question. It's for both you and Diana. It's a totally different topic. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no uh, idea what's coming. <laughs> uh, should we change our names? Mm. <laughs> well, changing identity just seems fun. 
but it's also a lot of work. So it's fun and work. Uh, I have decided to change my last name when I get married this June. Uh, and so will my future husband. So we're choosing a new last name together, which I'm sure we'll talk about on a future Should We episode, the oh, big wow. reveal. Okay. Um, but it was such a fun process to design a family identity together. And we like want a coat of arms for ourselves and, you I know, be able to define all of the associations and, uh, you know, what it meant to us and what we wanted it to mean to us. So... Yeah, I'm getting excited about having a new name to mark a new phase in my life. That's so exciting. That's the ultimate design project. Mm -hmm. I got married last year and I did not change my name. And I I didn't consider an alternative. I did consider the prospect of creating a new identity, but the idea of of changing my name and 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 taking my now husband's name was just never it was never on the table. I just like I never considered it. I like the idea of a new identity for a new phase as like a joint venture. I like that a lot. But I think like I I don't know, I've made it you know, quite a ways through life with with this name and this identity and the prospect of of assigning a new last name just didn't uh didn't ring true for me. And then I also think I I worked really hard on my SEO and I'm doing really well. <laughs> I'm not going to throw that away. Got to keep those Google results. <laughs> I also have a very common name, which I find regrettable. So I like the idea of creating a new, unique identity. So maybe that will maybe that'll be part of my future vision. Who knows? So what do you think? Should we end on that note? Yeah, and... Get on to the new beginning. The new beginning. We just love new beginnings, we love new beginnings. It's like every episode is a new <laughs> beginning. But this time there's really something. We are very excited to announce that there will be a... Should we live show? <laughs> <laughs> Diana just fell off her stool. <laughs> I should we live show? <laughs> Heather, I really hope you can come. Will you try and I would come? love to be there. Okay, well, if you and our listeners also want to come, uh, you can find out more details at shouldwe.co slash live. Diana, are you okay? I'm so fine. I'm so <laughs> excited. I'm back on the chair. <laughs> Another thing to note about this show is that it's a celebration of our birthdays because our, our birthdays fall very closely together and they are coming right up. So check out that link. We have many people to thank. Should we begin with our patrons? Yes. Thank you to our patrons. You too can join the Love Hate Club at shouldwe.co slash pay. And we would also like to thank Yosh at Faultline Studios for recording and editing this episode. Thank you to the band Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland. Thank you to Math Times Joy for our identity. And thank you to all of our listeners who keep changing our beliefs about what should we is for. Thank you very much. Should you tune in next time? We'll leave it to you.